Welcome to Success the Last, a podcast that honestly explores the complicated topic of success. I'm your host, Jared Siegel. I'm a partner at DeLap and leader of our wealth advisory practice. During each episode, we're going to talk to a business owner, entrepreneur, real estate investor, or industry thought leader about their own experiences, insights, and observations as it pertains to life, business, finances, and ultimately fulfillment. Candidly, it can be lonely at the top. Our desire is to use this podcast to connect you with the ideas and resources so you can be better equipped to make more predictable, profitable, and rewarding decisions as you juggle the competing priorities of life, business, and money. Keep in mind, this is a podcast. It's not meant to be a replacement for your CPA or financial advisor, so be sure to check with the appropriate professionals before implementing any of the ideas. All right, welcome back to another episode of Success That Lasts. I've been really looking forward to this conversation today with Chris Jensen of The Table Group. I've known Chris now for almost 10 years, but have been studying The Table Group and their premise and their theories for, well, almost 15 years probably. And so more recently, I've had the opportunity to kind of really roll up the sleeves and then from a first-person perspective here at DeLap, really try to apply these principles. So without further ado, let's jump into today's conversation with Chris Jensen. Chris, how you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Jared. It's an honor to be here. Appreciate the generosity of taking some time to talk to us here. I guess let's start with, you've been at the Table Group now for for quite a while. Kind of how did you come to find the Table Group? Kind of the origin story there. Yeah. So I, I used to live in California, which is where I first met Pat. And the team at the table group, this was, gosh, this was somewhere around 2004 or five, somewhere around there. And I was actually in ministry. And one of the women who was in our church, actually on our worship team, got a job there. She was in a Bible study with my wife and came and said, I got this job with this small little consulting firm in Lafayette, California, and was telling my wife all about it. And my wife said, I think my husband reads all his books. And I had been reading Pat's books, Five Dysfunctions of a Team, Death by Meeting, for several years, applying them in the context of the church. And I'd been a, basically become a friend of the firms ever since. And then about 10 years ago, right before you and I met, Pat had asked me to join his consulting team. And at first, I was a little reluctant. Consulting was not, was not in my interest, but it was the right thing to do and never looked back. It's been incredible. Absolutely. Well, I find myself to be a table group, Patrick Lencioni, your whole team evangelist. And so I think it's easy for me to just to take it for granted that everyone's heard of you. Certainly most people seem to have heard of you, you guys, but I guess providing some context, it's interesting. There's countless books on leadership, countless books on finance, marketing, organizational smarts, I think, as you guys talk about it, but not as much on organizational health. I guess, could you provide a little bit of framework yeah, so it'll help us kind of talk about a little bit more of what you do day to day. Yeah, the table group, which was started by Patrick Lencioni and and a small group of really his friends who are all still in the firm today. They had all worked together and they had had this idea of maybe let's quit our jobs and start a small little consulting firm in the Bay Area, working with local clients, and maybe we'll provide just enough income to provide for our families. Pat had actually written down the idea on a napkin of what if we could help companies with the health of their organization, not just with what we call the organizational smarts, all of the intellectual decision-making sciences, things around strategy, finance, technology, 
products, services, all the things that most leaders spend most of their time talking about. Pat and the team initially were thinking, gosh, what if we could help a company deal with how their people are working together, what we call the, or- the health of the organization? And that's what the firm has been. There was, that was before there was any books and nobody had heard of Pat or the table group. And it really wasn't until his book, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, did people start to really pay attention to Pat and us. And the irony of that book is our publisher had said, oh, probably we don't need another book on teamwork. There's a lot of books out there. And then that's probably become one of the number one best-selling books on teamwork for, gosh, since 2002. I think it's been well-read. That made me immediately think of Steve Ballmer critiquing the iPhone. Like, who needs the iPhone? This thing is silly. You know, like one of those quotes that lives in infamy. Exactly, exactly. And all of the books that Pat has written have all been fables. We call them fables. They're fictional stories taken from real life experiences with clients. And Pat kind of puts them together. I don't know if you know this, Jared, but Pat's actually in college had studied screenwriting. So Pat is really passionate about movies and screenwriting. And so this was kind of an outlet for him in the early days of the consulting company to take a lot of the things that we were seeing and he was experiencing with clients and put it together for clients, never thinking people would actually buy these books. And turns out they do. Yeah, it's a super interesting format. You can go to an MBA program and and study Harvard Business Schools and theories, but it's a neat intersection between these principles and then seeing them in in action, so to speak, in fables within these make-believe teams that that feel so familiar, right? Like you can almost go label these people, oh, that's so-and-so. These kind of proxy people that we all have within our organization and some of our <laughs> our defaults. And that was actually by design to a point. One of the reasons, you know, the table group's always focused on working with CEOs. All the books are geared towards CEOs. And that's always been part of our intention. And they were always written in short, easy to read, quick fables. Pat always had the idea, you know, CEOs are traveling and busy. I wish they could pick up a book in an airport, read it on one plane flight and be done with it by the time they land in their next city. And that was kind of the idea behind the book is let's take these concepts that are relatively simple, but have a profound effect on the performance of an actual organization and how well they're able to deliver value to their market and take these very difficult to practice ideas and yet are simple to understand and put them in a context that is very relatable. So the stories are intended really to be able to see yourself and your teammates in them and because it's, they're taken from you know, bits and pieces of real stories that have been real clients. So There's something unbelievably elegant, right? When somebody takes a complicated thing and distills it down to something accessible, right? Right. Buffett will sometimes talk about his investing. He'll say, oh, it's simple, but not easy. So I guess for the readers that are not super familiar or listeners not super familiar with kind of the premise, five dysfunctions of a team, there's a, a visual that I encourage them to go look up, yep. a pyramid. And it starts with kind of the usual organization. The premise for every relationship is invulnerability. That then follows artificial harmony, ambiguity, low standards, and ultimately the crescendo is status. Yeah. And you guys go in and you turn that on its head and it's, it's vulnerability-based trust. Right. And then conflict. And so what I think is a super interesting thing is we all kind of just take for granted that we understand what trust is. 
but it's really just predictive trust. So can you talk to us about how you guys look at predictive trust versus vulnerability-based trust and kind of how, how might we better understand that to have better relationships within our own teams? Yeah. The number one reason why, why CEOs and executives call us is because of the dynamics in the team. By far, that's the number one reason why they're calling us is they have a team and there's a lot of silos. And it's, it's baffling to us that people bring us in and we draw this, this pyramid. And at the foundation, we say, this is obvious. The foundation of great teamwork is team members need to trust one another. And really one of the things we explain to them, because most teams say, yeah, we trust one another. We don't need to work on that area. And usually what they're saying is, we have what we call predictive trust. So we've known each other long enough to know how to predict one another's behaviors. And we know how to work well with each other. And I've worked with them long enough to be able to understand how they do, how they tend to work and how they may work differently than I do. And we know how to work around each other's differences and get things done. That's predictive trust. But really, that's not what we're talking about as the foundation of, of strong teams. Great teams have at the foundation what we call vulnerability-based trust. At the time, you know, when Pat wrote this book, vulnerability was not necessarily a word as well-known of a word as it is today. I mean, there are so many books out there and things be written about vulnerability. But really, the idea is very simple. It's do the leaders on your team, how quick are they able to admit when they make mistakes and be totally unguarded with one another? have no defenses and admit when somebody else on the team might have a smarter idea than they do. And so when we talk about trust, what we mean is how willing are team members able to lay down their guard and sit around a table with one another and not be defensive and really discuss what's the most important issues without, without having to protect their own area. And so that level of defensiveness is really difficult for leaders. Well, absolutely. I mean, I think it's culturally unusual to encounter an organization that truly has people that surrender their invulnerability right right on a voluntary basis so i guess here this will this show will come out in early 2020 often you know a time of new beginnings right you mean 2021 hopefully new beginnings <laughs> less covid yeah <laughs> but like i guess how would you go back and restart with the team let's say the team's been in place for 3 or 4 years 5 years or whatever. Yep. How do you go from kind of this is predictively how we interact to introducing vulnerability so that you could have actually have constructive conflict and commitment and so on? Yeah, I think one of the things that surprises us is no matter how long people have worked together, they don't really know each other. And this is kind of the, the essence of, of what building a high trust team looks like. It really is about team members getting to know one another well enough so that they no longer have to assume best intent. You know, this is kind of a phrase that we hear a lot in the workplaces, assume best intent, assume best intent. And one of the things I always tell leaders when I'm working with a new team is the very starting point is you need to get to know each other well enough where you don't have to assume each other's intentions and motives. You need to really know them. And so there's several things we'll do with brand new teams to help them really start the process of getting to know each other and beyond just their functional responsibilities. One of the first things we do is we always have them take a team assessment. We have a team assessment. I think there's a team assessment in the five dysfunction of a team book that's free that any leader can utilize. But we'll have teams do a team assessment where we actually rate them on 40 different behaviors, 10 of which are specifically targeted towards 
trust. And so team members will will take that and we'll debrief the results with a brand new team. It's really helpful for them to see some concrete behaviors that exemplify what high trust looks like. And that's things like willingness to admit mistakes. I mean, these are very simple concepts, but admit weaknesses, ask for help, that sort of thing. The other thing we might do is we might have them do share a little bit about their personal history, where they came from, where they grew up, what it was like in the area they grew up. And you'd be surprised, Jared, the breakthroughs we've seen in some teams by just sharing basic information like, where did you grow up? How many siblings did you have? And where did you fall in the order? And what was a unique challenge you faced when you were young? I mean, those simple, we've seen teams who have worked together for 10 years who just those simple ideas, they've never even had that basic conversation. And then sometimes we'll do, you know, some sort of a personality profile or working styles profile so people can understand their differences. All of those things, what they do is they help us understand our differences and where we come from different from our different styles and approaches so that when you behave differently than I do, I know you well enough to not jump to conclusions about where you're coming from. All of those are things that when we don't make those investments undermine trust. Absolutely. Well, I guess I wouldn't be that surprised because for the last year, we've been immersed within our own organization within table group books and concepts and efforts to, yeah. to apply them. And to your point, many of my partners that I've been working with for 10 years, these principles when applied, when we do surrender our, our invulnerability and apply them can be right. transformative to the type of conversations that, that you're having. Right. So kind of formulaically, we started with the five dysfunctions of a team. And then right. we parlayed that into the advantage, which I thought was a great way of kind of like a how-to, so to speak. Like, well, how do exactly. we build upon organizational exactly. health? Well, and that's the thing is, there was never an intention to write a kind of a management guide. So the advantage is our only non-fable book. And the reason was because we had the five dysfunctions of a team sort of became an accidental bestseller, which was great and exciting. It's great to have that awareness. But people started to mistakenly think all we need to do is work on our team. And from the very beginning, our work was always about organizational health. The starting point was you have to build and maintain a, a very tight, cohesive leadership team. But there was more to it than that. You have to do that by working on what we call organizational clarity and getting your leaders totally aligned on the fundamentals of what you're trying to accomplish as a business. You have to pay attention to how are we communicating and reinforcing that playbook or that the clarity of our organization and what we're trying to accomplish, how well are we over communicating and reinforcing that? There's a whole set of disciplines that are required for an organization to be healthy. And so because people kept calling saying, hey, we need to work on teamwork, we realized, okay, we need, we need to put that work back in context of what we do as a company, which is help companies get healthy, not just help teams be more effective. That's one part of it. Yeah. So we went through the advantage, right? This process of organizational health applied at the intersection of strategy. Yep. And so one of the outcomes of that was a playbook. You referenced it. So it's a, it's a document that all of our leaders now keep in front of us. And it's where we try to start every one of our meetings. But one of the disciplines of a healthy organization is specific meeting cadence and specific yeah. types of meetings. And so this is a discipline that we're working really hard on. And I think there's opportunities for improvement. But so let's let's talk about death by meeting. Yeah. What I are some that. of the core principles that you've observed kind of 
common pitfalls of kind of the meeting soup that most of us struggle with? Like, how do you have better, better meetings more effectively and kind of the structure that you guys coach within? The irony of this conversation is most people don't think of meetings as interesting or even worth talking about. In fact, most leaders we talk about feel like we have far too many meetings and how do we reduce the number of meetings we're in? And, and to us, we look at that as pretty crazy to think that there are leaders whose job it is to sit in a room around a table with the people they spend every single day with talking about what should be the most important issues, that time in a meeting you would think would be exciting and something we'd anticipate. Because we see team meetings as like, that's game time for a leadership team. Let's imagine you're a football player. Jared, just imagine for a minute you played football. I mean, this will... I will. I'm going to dream <laughs> what it would be like. <laughs> imagine what it would be like, right? And so that would be... When an executive or a leader says, I wish I didn't have to go to team meetings, that's no different than a football player saying, I love football. I just wish I didn't have to go to the games. And that's insane. I mean, the reason why you become a football player is because you want to play the game and you love the game so much. And so game time is the you do all of the work to prepare for the game so that you can play and play your best. And we see team meetings as the same for a leadership team. When leaders come together, We should anticipate with a high level of excitement, getting together, being around a table and figuring out what are we going to talk about that's going to affect the direction of our company for the future. You would think that would be amazing. One of the things we realized is teams don't know how to meet. It's not the fact that they resist meetings, it's they don't understand the importance of them. And the reason why they miss it is there's two reasons. They're boring and they're confusing. They're unclear. We don't know what we're doing. And the boring problem is something one of the things Pat always he always references movies and one of his initial realization early on in the consulting firm was it's amazing that people will sit for two hours in a dark room with people they love and go watch a movie and then leave and say that was the best two hours I've spent all month and never having had any conversations with the people they're with they're just staring at a screen for two hours watching something and yet leaders will sit around a table with people they work eight to 10 hours a day with, you know, five or six days a week, talking about the most important things that they're doing with their time every single day. And they'll dread every second of it. And one of the reasons we realized is because one of the key differences between like a good movie and a good team meeting is conflict is if team meetings don't have more conflict in them, then people tend to get bored and they disengage. And we realize, gosh, team meetings need to have more conflict. Well, okay, so how do we get more conflict in team meetings? Well, we need to make sure the right issues are on the table. And you had mentioned meetings too. And this is one of the problems is the reason why meetings are boring and uninteresting is because we we have what we call meetings too. We have this weekly staff meeting that we throw every issue of the business into. We're dealing with like big strategic issues on new products or new markets we want to break into mixed with very small tactical things like, What color should the napkins be at the holiday party this Christmas? And then we end up saying, we start our meeting saying, let's deal with the low-hanging fruit first. Let's just tick off the easy stuff. And we end up spending 45 minutes debating whether our napkins should be green or yellow or red for the holiday party. And we spend no time dealing with the biggest stuff. And so this idea of meeting Stu, we realize, okay, so we need to provide a framework for leaders to understand how do I start separating out topics so we're having the right conversation? And so we basically just, when we're working with a team, we let them know, you know, if you're dealing with administrative issues that require minimal 
discussion and debate, have a meeting for that, but have it more frequently, but for less time each time. And so we typically recommend like a daily check-in type of a thing. But for big development issues where you have big strategy discussions, you need to leave a lot of time for that. And so we say have those less frequently because you don't need to have them, but give yourself a full day or two days to have an offsite with your team and really talk about where's the business going and really get in sync with each other around how the business is doing and where it's going. And in between those offsites, turn your staff meeting into a tactical meeting where you're constantly working to make sure we're making progress on the things we said are most important. And so there's a whole framework around this and, and people can find the information. The whole framework you can see for free on our website or Jared, you can include it with your, I don't know how you would include yeah, I'll, it. I'll link it to the show notes. I'll just take that PDF and it's a great place to find it. But it's all outlined in the book, Death by Meeting. It really is about providing teams with a clarity ar- around how they think about having discussions as a team. Because when you think about it at the end of the day, what is a leadership team? Well, it's a group of people who need to go to a team meeting and assess how the company's doing and then make decisions to improve that company. That's really what a team does. You shared some meeting principles, and I don't know if they're rules, but say the last 10%. Don't start a meeting until everyone's there. No electronic devices. I guess What are some thematic, simple best practices that you've observed across all the different teams that you've had the opportunity to work with? A good place to maybe, if we're overhauling how we do meetings, some things to to also consider within the context of this framework of avoiding meeting soup. Yeah. One of the things we we first recommend to teams, Jared, is... Did you say force, force recommend? Force recommend. I like that. Yeah. Kind of like voluntary. (laughs) Force recommend. Yeah. This makes people so uncomfortable, but we encourage them to get rid of agendas. And so this is very counterintuitive. This is not what anybody learned from Robert's Rules of Order. But we want to see teams get around a table. You know, we've done all this work to create a strategy. Well, let's come together and let's just spend the first 15 minutes asking ourselves, how well are we actually executing our strategy? And we encourage people to use a simple, like a stoplight, red, yellow, green which it turns out Al Malali used as well at Ford. So if a company like Ford can use that same model, it should work for, for all of us. But let's start the meeting by just assessing how are we doing against our strategy and our big priorities and objectives. And before we figure out what our agenda is, because what most people do that's I think is a mistake is they come to meetings where the leader had either created the agenda on their own or maybe pulled the group for their favorite topics. And we go into the meeting and we talk about boring stuff. Let's spend the first 15 minutes debating how well we're doing as a business against our priorities and identify the areas that are not doing well. And let's spend the meeting talking about that. So that's kind of our first kind of recommendation is get rid of agendas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think, I think these days, no multitasking is a big deal. I can always tell the effectiveness of a team based on how much permission they give each other to utilize technology in the meeting. You just can't focus when you allow yourself to multitask. And the best teams we work with, there's no technology in team meetings. Obviously, these days, you know, a lot with COVID, so many meetings are on Zoom and the best leaders are reminding their team at the beginning of the meeting. And these are executives saying, hey, no chats, no private chatting. Let's all stay focused on the issue. You know, when teams multitask, what should have been a 15-minute conversation turns into a 
45 minute conversation. And so everybody needs to stay engaged. You wouldn't do that on a football field. You wouldn't uh, multitask on a football field. So don't do it. Probably not. Yeah. That, that doesn't, <laughs> that wouldn't go well. I'm having fun just kind of getting some clarity on these concepts that I personally am wrestling with. Could you talk to me about the difference between inquiry and advocacy? That's something that I'm really, really working on right now. You know, yeah. typically, and we used to have meetings with everyone there and the, it was such a big room that there was limited time to talk. So if you got a very, you know, if you had a minute to talk, that was your, your moment on the pulpit, so to speak, to go advocate for your pers- perspective. Right. So I guess this, when you guys in your, in your literature present advocacy versus inquiry, I thought it was like, it was a fascinating delineation in terms of how do you approach a conversation with a colleague right? that I had had never fully appreciated before. Yeah. And the interesting thing is, is that concept actually came out of the question we get a lot, which is, what's the ideal team size? We always recommend a smaller team size. We always say the ideal team size of an executive team or any team, frankly, is five to seven. Once you get much bigger than that, what we would say is we tend to move away from inquiry into more advocacy. The larger a room gets, the more people want to make statements rather than ask questions to understand what's going on. So if we're in a large team and you come into a team meeting and you're hearing something you don't like, what you're going to do is you're just going to state your case because this is the one opportunity you have to state your case. But we're in a smaller team meeting and Jared, you were to come into the meeting and say, here's what I think we should do. Because there's only four or five of us, I'm probably going to start by asking you questions. We'll get into an argument over what you're saying faster because I don't feel like I need to make a case. I feel like I have time to ask you questions. And so what happens in teams, in great team meetings, there's far more inquiry, team members asking each other questions, trying to better understand where your idea is coming from and how you came to that conclusion and how do we know that's the best idea. That's far better use of our time than in larger team meetings when people tend to make more statements. This is probably the most notable we get to see is, you know, when Pat's speaking at a large conference, he'll regularly invite interruptions for people to ask questions, but almost all people who interrupt start by making a statement. And that's because in a group size, people want to make their statements rather than ask questions. That's interesting. So in my head, I'm thinking like, what would be some of the observable leading indicators of organizational health? So it'd be what percentage of the conversation is statements versus questions? Yep. Amount of conflict, you know, is there authentic conflict or false harmony? That's right. Use of technology. Use of technology. All right. One of the other things, I don't know if you and I have even ever talked about this, but one thing I pay attention to after I've worked with an executive team for a period of time, I'll go and observe a team meeting. And one of the things I pay attention to is what is it like when they walk into the room together? And obviously, this is now more rare because we're doing things virtually, but it's something to pay attention to. I'd walk into some teams and it would look like, you know, that old board game Battleship? Yeah. Yeah. It'll always look like a battleship tournament. Everybody's laptops open and everybody's heads down waiting for the meeting to start. But in great teams, I'd walk into the room and everyone's talking and asking about how their families are doing and how was the weekend and what did you do and what's going on this week. That type of buzz at the beginning of the meeting and that camaraderie and that personal interest was always an indicator to me, okay, this team actually trusts one another. They're actually interested in each other. And when that meeting started, it was starting with, this buzz, which is exactly the way you want to start something that's really important like that. Awesome. 
All right. So in the the last 10 or so minutes that we have together, I, I just want to shift the conversation. So when we first worked together years ago and in Morgan recently, a year ago, part of the getting to know you process was the Myers-Briggs. Probably a lot of people are familiar with that. So four letters, you know, extrovert, ENFP. I think that's what I am. So, <laughs> but now you and I have the same there. Yeah. More, more recently, yeah, the, an ENFP in the world of accounting is I'm kind of the clown. <laughs> but it's fun. Fun. But more recently, I've been reading and trying to learn more about the most recent tool that uh, the Table Group recently released around working genius. Got and it, so six it's types a, of working genius. Yeah. So it's a different perspective in terms of understanding our wiring. So Myers Briggs sees it from one perspective, but maybe sometimes leaves you kind of with, all right, so now what? Like, how do I apply right. this? How does one personality type work with another personality type? And so working genius was, a, I think, a, an interesting new question with new insights. So talk to me about that. Yeah. So this is one of those gifts that came out of the middle of a crisis, you know, the COVID crisis. All of our work had transitioned virtually. And Pat was doing this consulting. All of our ideas come out of our real life scenarios. And Pat was doing this consulting gig. And one of the co-founders was sitting there in the room with him. And at the end of the day, she'd asked him, how is it that you're the only one who can do this in the company? And he was constantly coming up with ideas for the clients and here's something you can do, here's something you can do. And it became this, they ended up having this conversation around a whiteboard and they fleshed out this idea, which is now called the six types of working genius. But the idea was they had sat and figured out there are really six things required to get anything done. And some people tend to be really good at others. And some are more passive and responsive and others are more disruptive and can create change. And it's so important to understand our differences to better clarify why we need each other. And so the six types of working genius is a model that came out of the middle of that and is brand new. It just, you know, we've been using it since I want to say July, June or July. And that night, actually, that Pat had whiteboarded, it, he jumped on a Zoom call just like this and showed it to me. And I told him, I was like, this is, this is going to be big. The next morning, I was on another Zoom call with a, an executive team, showed it to the executive team. And the CEO actually got emotional because it highlighted a major gap they were missing in the team. Maybe I could just walk through the model. Would that be the right yeah, thing? Because, absolutely. Because really what it boils down to is these six working geniuses. And some of them are going to be what we would call, everybody has what we call two geniuses and everybody has what we call two working frustrations, two of the six that are just not energizing when you have to do them. The first genius is the genius of wonder. And most people don't think of this as a genius, but somebody has to, at the beginning of, a, of any project or company or thing that we're trying to get done at work, somebody has to be thinking, what's the possibilities or opportunities that we should be going after? What problems should we be trying to solve in the world? And this is what we call the genius of wonder. It's the people who are naturally inclined to ponder and think about what is possible for us as a company, a team, or an organization. That's the genius of wonder. What they offer a team or an organization is problems to solve. And it's excellent when they're partnered up with somebody who has the next genius, which is the genius of invention. People who are naturally inclined to come up with ideas. I was talking with, a, with an executive the other day who she said this is exactly what her genius is. She gets impatient when conversations go on too long about what's possible. She really wants to get to ideas and she has lots of them. 
And this is really what the hallmark of the genius of invention is. And this is the one that most people think of when they think of a genius, which is the person who from a clean slate tends to have a natural instinct for coming up with good ideas. So they tend to, they, what they offer the world is ideas and solutions to problems that need to be solved. Now, most teams go straight from idea right to execution. And I think this is kind of what is unique about this model is we realized what people of the genius of invention really need is somebody who has the genius of discernment. And the genius of discernment, the process of invention, discernment, invention, discernment, that back and forth is really where innovation occurs. The people with the genius of discernment, what they offer is this intuition and instinct about whether or not an idea is worthwhile. So that is a powerful dynamic that most organizations actually are missing. People have ideas and they just start implementing ideas. But there are some people who are naturally inclined to discern whether or not ideas are, have validity to them or not. And so being able to tap into those people and their natural instinct on things is a powerful efficiency in an organization rather than putting resource behind ideas that we pretty much know are going to be a waste of time. So that's the genius of discernment. What they offer is valid ideas that are worth giving to people with the next genius, which is the genius of galvanizing. People with the genius of galvanizing have a natural inclination to rally the troops, get people excited about ideas, offer initial organization and momentum to get things going. They offer an organization or a team energy around things that need to get done. And they're an important part of keeping troops motivated and inspired and encouraged around where we're going. And so what they offer in energy, what they need are people with the next genius. And this is one that most people don't think of as a genius because it typically has a negative connotation, but it's the genius of enablement. And the genius of enablement are the people who are naturally inclined to want to volunteer their efforts, even on other people's terms. And so these are the people who love to volunteer their time. When a leader says, here's something I want to do, they're the first one to say, sign me up. I want to help with that. And so they're inclined to want to volunteer their efforts to serve kind of the greater good. I do not have this genius. This is one of my working frustrations. You can always tell people who don't have enablement as their genius because, you know, my wife will ask me to do the dishes and I'll, rather than just do the dishes, my first thought is, well, let's talk about if I'm the right person to do the dishes, maybe the kids should do the dishes. Is this the right time to do the dishes? It's, I'm always trying to figure out a way to get out of having to do something. And my wife's like, just do the dishes. Yeah. My wife has, has this genius of enablement. She loves serving people on other people's terms. And it's an important thing in any team or organization that we have that as a part of our team dynamic. Because when it's time to execute on something, we need people who are willing to execute on the terms we've agreed to. And what those people offer in terms of activity and effort what we need to be able to hand that off to is people with the last genius, which is the genius of tenacity, which is the people who are naturally inclined to want to put structure around an idea in order to see it through to the end. And they're really motivated to see the result of a thing. So those six geniuses, wonder, invention, discernment, galvanizing, enablement, and tenacity, all six are essential to the effectiveness of a team. What's different between this and other you know, personality tools is this is not about personality. What Pat will say is, this is about understanding what your God-given gifts are and being able to use them in the context of a team in order to better affect the outcome of the team or organization because all of them are essential. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. So sometimes, I guess, without 
this lens, you could be sitting around the room with a leadership team with some kind of invisible bias in terms of who gets exactly. invited into that room. And if you take a Myers-Briggs, there could actually be a diversity of, of personalities within the room too. Right. But you could be in a room where a team where there is no wonder, where there is right. no intention. And it's really about optimization of some of the existing ideas. I mean, any experiences with that so far? And I think the larger an organization gets, the more, you know, that last genius, the genius of tenacity is rewarded. We love to stack leadership teams with people who are really good at putting together structures in order to get things done. And so that first team I was telling you about where the CEO got emotional, his entire executive team all had enablement and tenacity. They were all over on the on that far end of our, you know, if you looked at the way we draw it all on the left side. And he was the only one on the team who had the genius of invention. So every time he'd have an idea and he'd throw an idea out into the team, they were immediately trying to figure out how to resource and implement that idea. And they'd get frustrated with him every time he'd have an idea and they didn't have resources for it. And he was frustrated with them because he was saying, I'm just trying to talk and process what we could possibly do as an organization. And once he realized what I need, what he needed was somebody who had the genius of discernment who would just sit with him in, the di in a discussion around his ideas and help iterate on those ideas before we even talk about whether or not we want to resource them. That was kind of the light bulb for him. And then the decision was made, weaning it out, go look for those people and bring them onto the team. You know, that's not something you would do with Myers-Briggs. You would never stack a team based on Myers-Briggs types. But in every team, you need to have these six geniuses. And so you want to have people who are naturally inclined in some of them or in all aspects of them in some way. Interesting. So I, I jumped online. I took the profiling, I guess, the assessment. Working genius assessment. Yeah. Yeah. So my working genius is invention. So all my ideas are probably a bit obnoxious because I have a lot of them. <laughs> working competency is discernment and my working frustration is enablement and tenacity. Yeah. So I guess if I'm trying to learn more about this, like what does this working genius of invention look like? There's strengths in it, but there's some weaknesses. And then I guess, how do I manage the working competency? Where would be a great place to look to learn more about this framework or this model? You can go to our website, which you can include in the show, the link to that in the, the working geniuses website. And all the information is there for you to take the assessment. It's actually... I want to say fairly inexpensive to other assessments, which we did on purpose. One of the things we wanted to do was get this assessment made. This is the first time we actually built an assessment before a book. And the reason for that was we wanted people to start using it right away. We realized the power in the concept is in the application, not just the intellectual understanding of it. And so while Pat is right now working on the book, and that's definitely going to come next year, the assessment is there and it's very easy to take the assessment, you can do it in under 10 minutes. And the assessment has essentially two parts to it. The what we call the quantitative part, where you respond to a series of statements and assess yourself against those statements on, you know, how closely you identify with each of those different statements. And then there's a qualitative. And we give a thorough description of each of the six types. And we want anybody who takes the assessment to not just take the results for face value, but put your own judgment against it you know, read through the descriptions of the six types and really select which are the two that give me the most energy, which are the two that I can do, but they're not necessarily the most energizing. And what are the two that it drains my energy when I have to do them for an extended period of time? You know, what we would call your working frustrations. Chris, I had super high expectations 
for today's show. A client once said to me, expectations are resentments and waiting. You exceeded. You exceeded. <laughs> that sounded like a setup for this. Yeah. And you're well below expectations. Honestly. <laughs> no, I had high hopes. <laughs> and again, I, I just think it's, I just want to affirm kind of what your organization is doing. I can't tell you the number of times that I've, I've parroted something from your books, you know, conflict in the presence of trust is the pursuit of truth. And there's just a lot of wisdom and personally enjoying the benefits of, of the curriculum as our team really leans into it and wanted our community to be made aware of, of all the good stuff that is to be enjoyed. If yeah. we can put down organizational smarts for just a few minutes to really focus on organizational health, building a cohesive team and creating clarity across the entire team and organization. So thank you, Chris. Really appreciate today's conversation. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me.